Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. On the early morning of Thursday, January 27, 2022, Kevin Flythe was released from federal prison in Glenville, West Virginia, after serving 28 years for the robbery and killing of Paul McClure in Washington, D.C. While incarcerated, Kevin suffered a stroke that resulted in multiple ailments to the disability that he already had. Because of this, Kevin was granted an early release after serving 28 of his 35 years. After he was released, Kevin was driven to a Greyhound bus station in Charleston, West Virginia, by officials at the prison. Kevin was expected to travel from Charleston to Washington, D.C. on his own, despite not being physically and mentally competent to do so. His cousin, Michelle Royster, was excited to finally be reunited with her cousin after 28 years. They all were waiting on his release date since it was approved by the judge. Though excited, no one knew he would be released on January 27. Not his family, nor his attorney, Claire Maddow, until the day of. In fact, Claire had reached out multiple times to obtain his exact date of release and his travel itinerary so that she can communicate the arrangement with her client, Kevin, and arrange a pickup for him. Michelle waited and searched for Kevin at the bus station in D.C., but he never showed up. Kevin was never seen or heard from again. This is the Missing Found Podcast. I'm your host, Jaden Harlow. Before we get into the case, I have a few details to share about the show. The Missing Found is a true crime podcast focusing mainly on unsolved missing person cases in the Black community. The cases that I cover have either gone cold, have little to no media coverage, or have gone without conclusion. You can follow the show on Instagram at The Missing Found or on Medium at The Missing Found to read our original script. I also would like to mention that we have a case suggestion form in the show notes or description box that you can complete to submit your case suggestions that are of the Black and Missing. We now have a Patreon that's available for you to become a member in our private community to discuss cases deeper beyond our case analyses through live discussions, ad-free episodes, gain complimentary access to our original script, early releases and bonus content, and much more that's exclusive for members only. The show is now available on all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. I ask that you please like, Share and subscribe and comment to share your thoughts on this case. This is case episode 10, The Disappearance of Kevin Flythe.
The power of starting over. How many times have you started over? I can recount several experiences where I've made a mistake, made bad judgment, and started over. What if you were given a chance to start anew, but something or someone took that away from you? We all have to pay for our doings in some way or the other, but what if we paid our costs, positioned to be on the right track, and then something or someone came and dimmed our light? Kevin was given a second chance, but that was seemingly taken away from him. Today, we're discussing the disappearance of Kevin Flight. Kevin disappeared after being dropped off at the Greyhound bus station in Charleston, West Virginia, after being granted an early release due to his declining health. Somehow, days leading up to Kevin going missing, some odd behavior happened with the Bureau of Prisons. Calls and emails went unanswered until the exact date of and events that just did not make sense that should have never happened in the first place. Kevin has not been spotted as of recently. We have no surveillance footage except this photo still that may be Kevin, but not exactly confirmed, and an extensive list of questions that just don't add up. Though this case is different from our usual case analyses, because there just isn't a great detail of information and updates on the case available, we will detail Kevin's childhood, the event that took place that landed him in the prison system, the facts of the case, what we know, and where we stand today. So who is Kevin Flythe? Kevin Flythe, whose nickname is Man, was born in 1969 in Washington, D.C. He grew up in the LaDroit Park neighborhood of D.C., which is walking distance to Howard University. According to his cousin, Michelle Royster, Kevin had a pretty good childhood in D.C., He was raised by his mom, who was a teacher, and his aunt who played an integral part in his life. Kevin spent a lot of time at his aunt's home, where he had several cousins there. He had the typical family dynamic. They had family outings every Saturday to the movies and museums, and during weeknights they enjoyed family dinner together. Kevin was known to always have a lot of friends when coming up from childhood to his adolescent years. Later, he enrolled in a program that introduced him to sports. The program offered horseback riding, chess, and fencing. During his early years, Kevin had become diagnosed with lead poisoning. Like other young Black children and adults in the D.C. area in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and even still today, lead poisoning is the result of a buildup of lead in the body. Lead exposure can come from lead-based paint, lead-contaminated dust in older homes, and occupational exposure, just to name a few. Most of the older buildings that housed families were painted with paint that had lead in it. The exposure alone can cause serious life-threatening and altering issues. And some of those symptoms include developmental delays, abdominal pain, neurologic changes, and irritability. At very high levels, it can be fatal. When Kevin was born in 1969, he was born only nine years before there was a federal law in place that banned lead-based paint to be used in homes. This can conclude that Kevin may have suffered with lead exposure for over 10 years. As a result, Kevin developed serious cognitive disabilities that delayed his development, and then he also had a left arm that was paralyzed from an accident. 
Michelle said that due to his vulnerable disposition, it made him susceptible to be easily influenced. And I have a direct quote from Michelle. Unfortunately, Kevin was kind, but he was also a person who was easily influenced. End quote. Trouble awaits. Kevin had got into some trouble. He had strangled a man and ultimately killed him. Though there are not a lot of details of the crime, a jury found Kevin guilty of the robbery and killing by strangulation of 47-year-old Paul McClure and was given 35 years at just age 24. I want to also mention that Michelle does not know the full details of that night Kevin had committed the crime, but she believes that if he did do it or was involved, he had acted on the behalf of others. I can only assume that her reasoning for that is correlative to his cognitive development and possibly poor judgment as a result. The beginning of the unfound. While serving his sentence, he was transferred to several different prison facilities where DC inmates were housed. Kevin ended up at FCI Gilmer, which stands for Federal Correctional Institution. FCI Gilmer is a medium security United States federal prison for male inmates in West Virginia. It is operated by the Federal Bureau of Prisons, or BOP. While incarcerated, Kevin, age 51 or 52, has suffered a stroke that paralyzed his right arm along with his already paralyzed left arm, and he was unable to use most of his upper body due to both arms being paralyzed, brain damage, and limited to only communicate yes or no, and with restricted and worsening vision. His attorney, Claire Madel, argued that the prison system did not provide adequate health care before or after the stroke. Kevin's attorneys alleged in court documents that the agency failed to properly treat his hypertension and hypercholesterol, which can make someone vulnerable to strokes when left untreated. Kevin was also not provided with speech and physical therapy for months. With that, both are critical for recovery. This isn't a typical when it comes to prisons and inmates not receiving proper health care that they are rightfully due as their human right. There are laws in place for even the basic care on a human level for inmates. Attorneys also argue that Kevin should be released from prison so that his family can care for him. At this point in time, he was and is no longer a threat due to his disability. By 2022, he had already served 28 years. The release was granted for Kevin under the Compassionate Release Statute and later under a recently expanded D.C. law, the Omnibus Public Safety and Justice Act of 2020, which allows judges to consider reducing sentences of certain people who were under age 25 at the time they committed a crime. The Compassionate Release Statute provides incarcerated individuals with the opportunity to petition the BOP and their sentencing court for a reduction in sentence when the individual can show extraordinary or compelling reasons for his or her release. This worked in Kevin's favor since he committed his crime at age 24, which directly appoints to the Omnibus Public Safety and Justice Act of 2020 and the compassionate release due to his disability. And I have a direct quote from Kevin's attorneys that they wrote in a memo to reduce his sentence. Quote, this 52-year-old individual who currently lacks the ability to speak beyond yes or no, 
who has limited functioning of both of his arms due to a prior injury and his stroke, and who has limited and worsening vision, would hardly pose a danger if released. End quote. The judge approved Kevin's early release. Kevin was released this morning. Kevin suffered his stroke on August 2021 and was released the early morning of January 27, 2022. The thing about his release is that no one knew the day he would be released. His family did not know, nor his attorneys. When releasing an inmate, there is protocol, especially with someone who is disabled, cognitively or physically. However, none of this was followed on the morning of Thursday, January 27th. Before we get into the details of his release, which led to his actual disappearance with what little we know, I want to briefly go over the standard protocol from Claire and what she facilitates with her clients. This helps to understand and offer insight to what should have been done as part of Kevin's release plan to ensure of a successful arrival home. The process to release an inmate, according to Claire. Claire would have consistent communication by phone calls and emails with the Bureau of Prisons to update the inmate's release papers with the appropriate home address and receive the travel itinerary. She says she then explains to clients how their travel will work, whether it's by bus or plane, and how they can reach her should they encounter any problems. According to Claire, for someone disabled or critically ill, she would arrange for someone to pick up her client from the prison. As you can imagine, none of this happened. Claire contacted the Federal Bureau of Prisons a dozen times through phone and email, and they all went unanswered. When she did receive a response, it was on January 27th, the day Kevin was released, from an executive assistant from FCI Gilmer, the prison where Kevin was incarcerated. The contact was through email, and it stated that Kevin was released that morning and driven to the Greyhound bus station. A BOP official stated that they called Claire to say that they are not authorized to give her Kevin's release information, which she disputes. The official also informed Claire that Kevin should be on a bus arriving in D.C. late that night of January 27th. And I have a direct quote from Claire Madel, Kevin's attorney. Quote, we only found out the bus route Kevin was supposed to take through the bus company, not FCI Gilmer. My office is now trying to oversee a massive missing person search that spans multiple states, end quote. So I have the supposed bus schedule that Kevin should have took on January 27th. So he would have started at Charleston, West Virginia, where he was dropped off at from the prison official. His departure would have been at 9.50 a.m. And he would have taken Barron's bus, which is a contractor for Greyhound bus. And that bus number is 0030. His next stop would have been in Cambridge, Ohio. He would have arrived at 12.40 p.m. and then departed at 1 p.m. Next, he would have arrived in Cleveland, Ohio. His arrival time would have been 3.30 p.m. and departure 4.55 p.m. And here he would have made a transfer to transfer to the Greyhound bus, bus number 1636. Next, he would have arrived in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, from there, he would have arrived at 8.15 p.m. and departed at 9.15 p.m. 
The next stop would have been Baltimore, Maryland. He would have arrived at 1.50 a.m., January 28th at this time. And then he would have departed at 2.25 a.m. This is also his final transfer point, and he would have transferred to get on the Greyhound bus, 3593. His last and final stop would have been in Washington, D.C., and he would have arrived at 3.25 a.m., which was scheduled, but actually the bus arrived 52 minutes late on this day. Retracing Kevin's Last Steps on Record On Thursday, January 27, 2022, an official drove Kevin from FCI Gilmer, located in Glenville, West Virginia, to the Charleston, West Virginia Greyhound bus terminal and arrived at 6.32 a.m. The drive from the prison to the bus station is one hour and 34 minutes. And of course, the drive time is dependent on the route taken. Kevin was supposed to board a Barron's bus, which again is a subcontractor of Greyhound, that departed at 9.50 a.m. The bus was supposed to arrive in D.C. on January 28th at 3.20 a.m. And as stated, the bus was a little over 50 minutes late. Throughout his travel, he had multiple layovers and transfers, a ride that Kevin could not and should not have taken on his own. After both Michelle and Claire learned about his bus itinerary, Kevin would have had to transfer buses twice, once in Cleveland and once in Baltimore. Michelle waited at Union Station, excited to see Kevin and welcome him home, but he never showed up. She watched the buses come and go, passengers board and depart, but no Kevin flight. After finally receiving the release papers, after the fact, Michelle and Claire both noticed that the address that was on the release forms is from 1995, and his family been moved from that home address nearly 30 years ago. This was another instance that was just complete negligence, lack of care, and just total mismanagement. The bus schedule was never sent to Claire, and still today, it has not been from what I understand. The bus schedule was confirmed through Barron's bus on the itinerary that he would have taken. And I have another quote from Clara Madel. Quote, Barron's bus said the tickets was used, and someone at the station says they saw Kevin get on the bus. We now think he did, in fact, get on the bus in Charleston. End quote. I want to mention that it's not atypical for officials to just release inmates and let them figure it out themselves. It's a flaw in the judicial system, in my opinion, but it's a part of the release process. Inmates who serve their time are given a bus or plane ticket home to the state on their release forms, and they get integrated in society is that. There's no transition period or formal process for inmates after re-entering into society. For several inmates, they went in at an entirely different period in time, served their time, and to get released in a different period of time. Completely different decade, and that has to be incomprehensible. Kevin was incarcerated in the early 90s, and it was vastly different from how it is today and when he was released in 2022, making it even more difficult. With his disabilities, there was no way he could have been competent and physically capable to take that trip or permitted to take that trip on his own. The Search the search for Kevin, in my opinion, was limited. Michelle filed a missing persons report in D.C. From there, it was directed to the Public Defender Service Office, or PDS. 
The PDS office in D.C. offers legal representation to indigent children and adults in the district. The search led PDS to Union Station in D.C., Kevin's destination, and that was unsuccessful. It is not clear exactly what the search entailed, but there were no findings of Kevin. The search continued to Charleston, West Virginia, where his bus schedule commenced and where he was dropped off by the official. Madel, Kevin's attorney, filed a missing persons report in Charleston and it was added to the National Database for Missing People. Then, the search led to Cleveland, Ohio. Cleveland is where Kevin would have had his first transfer to a different bus and there was a short layover there if the bus was actually on time, which I have not come across anything to say that the leg of this trip was late or delayed. According to the bus schedule that I reviewed, he would have arrived in Cleveland at 3.30 p.m. and departed at 4.55 p.m. Typically, with Greyhound buses, passengers can board up to 20 minutes before departure. This would mean that Kevin would have or could have boarded as early as 4.35 p.m. But would he have known that? His layover would have been a little over an hour, but if he would have boarded 20 minutes before departure, it would have been only an hour of wait time before boarding. If he was in Cleveland, he should have been spotted in the waiting area, the bathroom, information desk, the line, or somewhere in the terminal. Kevin's attorney reached out to local Cleveland police, public defenders, and Greyhound bus officials. A detective who was assigned to the case contacted men's shelters and hospitals, but nothing came of that. However, a week after he disappeared, on February 2nd, investigators from the public defender's office in Cleveland had went to the Greyhound bus station and found surveillance footage of a person they believe had been Kevin. This person was standing near the ticket line in the terminal, and that's all we have with that possible sighting. According to the Washington Post, investigators said Kevin may have boarded a train with multiple stops towards D.C., now, I can't confirm if this was a misprint or not in the article because it said he may have boarded a train, but it should have been a bus at that station and not a train. His next transfer point would have been in Baltimore. He would have arrived at 1.50 a.m. with a 30-minute layover and could have boarded up to 20 minutes before departure at 2.05 a.m. with a departure of 2.25 a.m. Because there were no findings at Union Station, it could very well mean that he did not make it to D.C. At this point, he could be anywhere from Cleveland to D.C., and that's only if that sighting was actually him in Cleveland, which would communicate that he did make it to Cleveland, and that's where things stopped. Now, we can't 100% eliminate the fact that by time officials at the other stations found out that he was missing, or he may have encountered, were contacted, the surveillance footage may have been recorded over or he could have simply been missed in the footage. If that was him on camera in the still shot, where is he today? Where did he go? It's been one year since Kevin Flythe has been heard from. If Kevin did get off track during his transfer point in Cleveland, the weather was at a freezing temperature at 24 degrees Fahrenheit. The weather was 9 degrees Fahrenheit in Charleston, West Virginia, on that early morning, he was dropped off to start his bus trip. This case is odd, but I'm not surprised. We have a man that served his time, suffered a stroke in prison, did not get the care that he should have rightfully received to help with his recovery, 
got an early release due to his disability, and was just dropped off to figure it out on his own and managed to travel back to his hometown with no assistance except a ride to the Greyhound bus station and a ticket. You know, as I was reading the details and researching this case, did Kevin actually commit the crime by strangling the victim, Paul McClure? Was he wholly responsible or partially? I ask because we can't forget that his left arm was paralyzed at age 24, the age at when the crime was committed. It's not clear exactly to what level or to what extent or when exactly his arm was paralyzed, but his arm was paralyzed. Could he have executed this and were others involved? We also don't know to what extent did he have cognitive issues. I'm not making excuses for him, but because if he did the crime, he did the crime, and we all have to answer for the actions we make. However, was he given a fair trial to even be sentenced in the first place? I can't speak to the case because there just isn't anything public that I can find on it, but I thought I should bring it up. I find it odd that no one has come forward with information, at least that I have access to, to say that they've seen Kevin. Well, except at the Greyhound bus station in Charleston, someone did say they saw him, but could we be sure that was who they actually saw? We can't. Because he was incarcerated for such a long time, I'm sure he may have been confused and probably looked confused because it was a new world that he had to instantaneously get used to on a whim. He was dropped off at a bus station and left to reach D.C. on his own. He would have had to transfer twice. He could not communicate verbally, and both of his arms were paralyzed. This, within itself, is challenging. Imagine you're just getting released from prison. You're nonverbal. You have limited functionality of your upper body. Your vision is restricted. And your first experience back into society is to travel on a non-direct bus. Then, I think about the surveillance footage. The only surveillance footage we see is a still shot of what looks to be Kevin. But due to the quality of the still shot, we can't be 100% sure that it was actually him. There is no other footage of Kevin at any time that have been publicly released or mentioned that law enforcement has that they have not released. What is disheartening is not only that Kevin is missing, which alone is just unexplainable, but there has been little to no media coverage on his disappearance. Are law enforcement and the public defenders in D.C. and Cleveland actively looking for him since he was last in the company of an official from FCI Gilmer, a federal prison? Where does the case stand today? Is law enforcement sure that he even walked into the bus station in Charleston, West Virginia that early morning? Kevin's travel from around 18 hours in total from January 27th to January 28th in the early morning. The drive from West Virginia to D.C. is around five hours. We have to account for the bus trip, the multiple stops and layovers which prolong such an easy trip making it a full day trip. I don't understand why officials did not think to not release him until there was communication between them, his attorney Claire, and family. Kevin is disabled, so this should have been triple checked or at least mandatory. We're talking about the prison system. So can we expect that level of thoroughness? Somewhere along the way, there was a disconnect in communication between the attorney and BOP. 
A spokesperson from BOP did confirm that Kevin was released from custody on January 27th, but due to privacy, safety, and security reasons, they cannot provide any further information on inmates not in BOP custody. My goal is to bring awareness, help push Kevin's case to re-enter the media rotation, and prayerfully, someone may see this article or the few others and it can jog someone's memory. Above all, I pray Kevin is okay and unharmed. After all, he has done his time. We want the best for him in his future and to receive the proper care that he unfortunately did not receive while incarcerated. In a case like this, who dropped the ball? Who should be held responsible? I think we all know. And lastly, it has been confirmed by Baron Bus that the bus ticket was used that morning. But is there solid proof Kevin was dropped off and walked into the bus station in Charleston? At the time of his disappearance, Kevin was 52 years old, African-American, stood at 5'7", male, weighed between 190 to 200 pounds. He had brown eyes and brown hair. Kevin was last seen wearing blue jeans, a gray t-shirt, and a Dickie-style navy blue zip-up jacket. Kevin has distinctive physical characteristics. He had a stroke five months prior to his release on January 27, 2022. He has difficulty speaking and can mostly answer yes and no to questions. And paralyzed or weakness in both arms due to the stroke in a prior car accident. I want to also mention that Kevin is not dangerous, nor is he a threat. And this was stated from his cousin, Michelle Royster. Kevin would be 53 today. If you have any information or leads in the disappearance of Kevin Flight, his current whereabouts, or any information concerning Kevin, it should be directed to the D.C. Metropolitan Police Department, the Missing Persons Unit, at 202-576-6768. You can also contact the Charleston Police Department at 304-348-6480. And lastly, you can contact Claire Madel, Kevin's attorney, at 561-766-7170. And Claire's email address is cmadel at pdsdc.org. I have included the website URL for both police departments if you prefer to contact the departments through their website with any information. I want to thank you for your viewership of Kevin's case. I ask that you please share so we can all help bring Kevin home. His family awaits his return, including us. We need answers. As I stated, Kevin served his time of 28 years, and he has a right to go home to start recovery and integration back into society. Something went terribly wrong in his travels from West Virginia to D.C., and he still deserves his second chance. Somewhere in between, things did not go as planned. Someone has to know something and may have interacted with him while in transition to their bus or exiting the station. Because Kevin's case has received very little coverage and with no updates since the year he had went missing, if someone did see him in Cleveland, his transfer point, they may not even know he is missing.
We know camera footage has been long gone since it has been a year. And as with every case, until people start talking, and for Kevin's case to be taken serious, receive the coverage it desperately needs, and reaches the person who may have information, since we know no one can just disappear, this case will remain open, unsolved, and very cold. As always, please be safe, be vigilant, and always be aware of your surroundings. May God bless and keep you all. You've never gone too far that God can't redeem you, restore you, forgive you, and give you a second chance. By Lisa Turquoise. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for one twenty nine each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for two forty nine a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.